Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman. And I'm Eve Simmons. And we are health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to. This week, we're asking, is it right to classify obesity as a disease? As ever, we'd like to know what you think. So if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield, tweet us at MedMinefield. So Eve, this is going to be a slightly convoluted story as to, to how this how this all happened because there was many different moving parts. But basically, uh, a couple of weeks back, I was in Chicago at a medical conference um, and went to a big seminar on a drug called semaglutide. Mm-hmm. I think I've pronounced that right. Is it semaglutide or semaglutide? I don't know. Semaglutide sounds I think semaglutide sounds mm-hmm. more like mm-hmm. it, but... Anyway, semaglutide is what we're going to call it. It's also known by brand names Ozempic and Wygovi and various other things, I think, as well. It's a drug that I'd heard of before because it's been available here since on the NHS since February. But I, I probably hadn't quite engaged with how remarkable it is. At this lecture, they've done a whole series of clinical trials involving different patient groups, looking at different scenarios of how this drug is used. And consistently, this drug seems to bring about weight loss in obese people. People on it lose about 16% on average, so some people far more of their body weight. It's a remarkably successful drug that really does what it says on the tin. And it's something that I think people have been waiting for for a very long time. It works on part of the brain that's involved in feelings of hunger and satiety. Satiety. Yeah, fullness. And this has led doctors to say, and these doctors have believed it for some time, and it was it was the way that they were talking about it. They were talking about people with obesity. Mm. And when normally we refer to people who are overweight, we say they are overweight. But they were saying people with obesity as if it was something you A could condition. catch. Mm. And the more I looked into this, the more I realised that this is actually an entire school of thought in endocrinology and obesity metabolic medicine, that obesity is not something that is just a lack of willpower, that people just get overweight because they eat too much because they're greedy. And they're lazy, they're sitting around on the sofa all day watching Netflix. These aren't the things that I necessarily think, but Mm -hmm. these are the tropes that Mm -hmm. surround people who perhaps are slightly heavier than others Mm -hmm. and in fact these people are suffering from a neurological disorder and one expert I spoke to today was saying a hundred years ago we thought epileptics were possessed by the devil or evil and there was something terrible going on and in fact we wouldn't dream of describing someone who had an epileptic fit as being possessed by the devil anymore I mean it would just be ludicrous Mm. and he was saying similar kinds of misunderstandings and myths surround obesity in fact there's a dysfunction in part of the brain involved with feelings of hunger and control of hunger that goes haywire Mm. in large numbers of people, in fact, and it causes them to be much, much hungrier than other people, much less able to control their appetite, and therefore they eat more and therefore they put on weight. The drug remedies this problem because it affects the neurological pathway. It is essentially a treatment for the disease of obesity. What do you think about that? I have two questions. One, do you take this forever? 
Are you on medication for the rest of your life? Good question. At the moment, it's nice approved for people who are obese for two years max. They don't have any good evidence for any very long-term health benefits. However, people have been using this drug experimentally for about 15 years now. Mm. So they know that in certainly in diabetic populations where they give this drug, there's no downside to continual treatment. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to have next year is data that shows definitively whether the semaglutide trials have reduced numbers of heart attacks in those patients who lost a lot of weight. And if, as expected, as hoped that it does, we may well see it offered on the NHS as a lifelong treatment. Well, my concern would be that as soon as you stop taking the drug, inevitably you're probably going to put all the weight back on again. Another good observation. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that does happen. Mm. You have to keep taking it because if you stop controlling this neurological disorder, it comes back. And apparently it comes back worse because you affect levels of something called GLP-1. It mimics this hormone GLP-1, which is involved in this uh, whole feedback loop between being hungry and, being hungry being and, and being releasing full. other hormones, being full, etc. Because it's mimicking that, you don't produce your own. So essentially, when you stop taking it, you have none. And therefore, you're even more hungry than before. My qualm is that I don't fully buy this idea that people become obese because they all have a neurological disorder and it's all very biological and genetic and physiological and whatever. I think the reason why people are more likely to eat more than others is so complex and there's lots and lots of different factors that are involved in that namely emotional triggers, situational triggers, cultural differences um, I don't think you can be so black and white in saying this person has this neurological problem and this person doesn't. I totally get what you're saying, but I've been very persuaded because by your same standard, you're saying it's psychological. And perhaps you're saying that very obese people have a, have a psychological disorder. In some cases, yes, I think so. I think so. That, that means that, that they have less ability to control their portion sizes, that they eat more, they might be drawn to food for different reasons. In a sort of for compulsive comfort, way. Compulsive. Mm -hmm. But again, does this not fall into the idea that therefore, if it's psychological, you can think your way out of it? What, so if you take a drug that makes you not hungry, then you're not going to engage in the same behaviours? I don't necessarily think that that's true. I mean, I don't know, but if... Often what we know about, certainly what we know about eating disorders and compulsive habits with food is that there is something much deeper underneath that's driving mm. it that's to do with very deep-rooted emotional issues that have nothing to do with food. And isn't that still going to be there even if you take away the hunger? It's still going to make you want to seek out something. Well, it's funny you should mention that because a rare side effect that they've seen with semaglutide so people stop enjoying eating so much. They don't get the same hit. Mm, they don't get that same dopamine pleasure, pleasure mm. hit. And so good. some people seem to switch to gambling addiction or alcohol addiction because they're still craving that that dopamine hit, that pleasure. Mm. So so clearly there is a strong psychological so right. aspect. Perhaps it all exists on a spectrum. You know, I know one of the doctors you were speaking to this week was saying, I don't know how he quantified this, but 70% 
biological, 30% environmental, yeah. psychological I've heard that, that statistic before. I also think that the difficulty with obesity is that what we're doing here is we're talking about ostensibly the way somebody looks and someone's body and the way they're presented to the world and whether we like to admit it or not I think we all have preconceived ideas about fatter people and this idea they're lazy they're maybe slightly immoral they let themselves go they can't be bothered to do things whatever they're slovenly and seeing the way that a body shape is as a disease I don't know I just find a bit tricky Mm, I hear you. Well, before we go any further, let's talk to someone who has taken this medication. Joining us now is broadcaster and male columnist Sarah Vine. Sarah, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us today. We're having a slightly rambling discussion about this philosophy that doctors have in treating obesity as an illness rather than, you know, something that is a matter of willpower. These doctors are all using the drug semaglutide in order to treat it because it corrects this neurological part of the brain uh, that, that's important involved in feelings of hunger etc and it's 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 almost proof that that in fact obesity that being overweight is not in people's control and we should offer these people lifelong medication now you've taken semaglutide and you've found it to be very effective haven't you yes 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 the thing is that there's a big division here on this debate there are people who think that overweight people are just greedy and lazy and can't control their appetites and then there are those who understand the medical side of this and understand that our appetites and our hunger are governed by hormones in our stomachs and that human beings are basically designed to eat as much as they possibly can because they never know when their next mastodon is coming along. So we have a natural tendency as a species to eat a lot. And the thing about being very susceptible to the pleasures of food is that it's not like being susceptible to alcohol or narcotics or tobacco. You can live without all of those things. You can't live without eating food. If you stop eating food, you will die. So therefore, you're locked in this sort of awful relationship with the thing that you don't really have the capacity to control. So that's why people, they lose weight, but then they put it back on again because they are always succumbing to this sort of overriding urge and we do live in an obesogenic mm, society. Mm. Food's everywhere. Food's a hobby. Food's a mm. entertainment. Food's exactly. everywhere. Exactly. And so, you know, I mean, I suppose an example would be, you know, you're a happily married man. Then there's an entire industry dedicated to throwing nubile, beautiful young girls in your direction. <laughs> Literally everywhere you go, there's another sexy hottie going, oh, you're very nice and attractive. Sooner or later, you're going to take a bite because there's just, overwhelming amounts of it and that's what it's like with the food industry is this how you felt yeah the food industry understands that a lot of human beings have trouble resisting food and so they make it their business food companies manufacturers of food will actually run tests while people are eating things to see which pleasure sense in the brain those things light up there's a whole industry dedicated to that because it's it's a lot of money so long story I started taking the daily injection a few years ago, and then I switched to semaglutide, which is the weekly injection. And what it does is it recalibrates your relationship with food. 
it stabilizes your blood sugar, but it also works on the hunger hormone. So this really weird thing happens, which is that food ceases to be a real pleasure of any kind. Before I was on this drug, if I ate a piece of chocolate or a sweetie or, you know, a yummy cake, I would get a palpable hit. Now I don't. It doesn't have the same effect on me. So therefore, I'm not ruled by this desire anymore. And what it also does is over a period of time, if you take the drug for a period of time, as I have done, it actually completely rewires your brain in relation to food. I now see food as fuel, not pleasure. And I don't try to overeat. I don't want to overeat. In terms of the benefits of that, obviously, it's, it, you feel that, you know, that it's really helped in many ways. It's been a positive thing for you. Yes, I mean, it's a very pragmatic approach. I mean, you know, the thing is, I mean, obviously, what many people will say is, oh, you know, you're just weak-willed, blah, blah, blah. I'm not weak-willed, trust me. I'm a pretty determined person. When I want to do something, I do it. This is the one thing that all my life has defeated me. And I think it is genuinely because I am one of those people who is very susceptible to getting high, basically, from food, if that makes sense. And it's interesting, I don't really have any other vices. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't take drugs, food is my drug. So I found it very hard. I mean, I could die and I could get weight off and stuff. But it didn't take very much for me to succumb again. Sarah, the way that you've described this situation to me sounds awfully depressing. <laughs> so you've taken the one pleasure that you had. You're now you're denying yourself of it. I'm, I'm just... No, no, because I now have a greater pleasure, which is that I'm no longer fat. So that for you is more important? Yes, because the other thing is, is that I hated being overweight with a passion and it made me actually depressed and it made me have very bad thoughts about myself. I really hated it. Maybe because, you know, people would take photographs of me and then put them on the internet and go, look, look at this fat cow, isn't she awful? But, you know, a number of factors. I didn't like it. Now I'm not, I mean, I'm not slim because I'm built like a brick shit house. But the point is, I'm not uncomfortable in my own body. I am much more active. My knees don't hurt anymore. You know, I don't have all of those sort of boring things you get when you're overweight. You know, I can walk everywhere. I can cycle. I can go to the gym. I'm not demoralised in the way that I was. Well, Sarah, thanks as ever. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, thanks for being so candid. Don't forget. Bye. What I was hearing there, Eve, was someone very clearly saying that some people have a sense of control over their eating and some people surrounded by the orgy of food Mm. that we are surrounded by everywhere. Cannot resist. Find it impossible to resist. I also heard something that I found quite depressing, that Sarah Vine obviously has this real... That, you know, the way she was talking about herself when she was bigger. And she said, you know, she wasn't morbidly obese. She was a bit overweight. It's so sad. Well, it's a separate thing, isn't it? I mean, she said herself, you know, people mm. constantly comment on her looks, you know, on social media and such like, which must feed into it. But as a whole, we're in a world that not only are we surrounded by all this food, but we're surrounded by a million images of, you know, mm. I mean, the beach body ready. And surely it's cyclical because the more you hate the way that you look, the more depressed you get, the more you eat. And I've seen it, you know, in people I know. And I would flip the issue on its head and say that perhaps what really needs to be explored is what is the cause of 
somebody's uncomfortableness with themselves and the way that they look. But don't you think that that's an equally vital thing to look at, perhaps in Mm. an ideal world, that people who were struggling psychologically... That they would be offered some kind of support, counselling, etc. Yeah, you know, I think to that's help remedy essential. that. But that, that, in fact, the weight loss is really key. It just makes me sad that the thought of never ever having any sort of pleasure from food ever again to me, life would not be worth living. But then I'm not obese and I don't have all of the health complications that may or may not exactly. come with that. So. Or the stigma that's attached. Or the with stigma. It. So it's kind of you know easy for me to say from my privileged position. Well, next, let's hear from a scientist who is convinced that obesity is a disease and ask them exactly why they think that is. Yes, on the line now is Sarah LeBrock, who is the director of the campaign group All About Obesity. Hi, Sarah. I know that you consider obesity to be a disease or a condition. Can you explain why? So the scientific evidence shows us that when somebody has more adipose tissue than the standard amount that someone would have as a human being. So anyone with a BMI over 30 starts having an increased amount of adipose tissue. And what that does is it starts creating different reactions in the body. So it starts in a more inflamed response. So the body's reaction to inflammation is kind of heightened a lot more. It starts changing the hormonal balance of the gut hormones. So making people not feel as full quicker or more hungry and those are just a couple of the mechanisms so it kind of fundamentally changes the physiological makeup of your body just by having excess adipose tissue so that's just the fat tissue within your body so by doing that you're making your body not function the same as someone that doesn't have obesity so that is making your body into a diseased state really which is why I know that obesity isn't something that you can just choose it's not something that you kind of decide one day oh I'm just going to go and live with obesity it's it's a lot more complex than we actually realize now I know some people argue that obesity is in fact a neurological condition that the the neurology of people who gravitate towards eating more is different to those who find it easier to say no to extra food or resist food and that's what brings about the weight gain Is that something that you believe is true? Yeah. In fact, I was at a conference recently where they were saying, you know, should we be calling obesity a disease of the brain? And I thought it was a really interesting take on it because what we do know is that the hypothalamus that works on the whole fight or flight in your body and controls your reactions to things, when someone lives with obesity, it is very much in that if you lose weight, your body wants you to kind of get back to that weight that you were the higher weight because it feels safe. It's a protection and that's all linked to the hypothalamus, which is in your brain. So that's regulating that kind of response. So it absolutely is linked to the brain and the, and the neurological pathway, absolutely. And that also links in with the signaling in the gut, because we know that the gut's quite closely linked to the brain and how those messages go through as well. And we know that the gut hormones are out of sync in someone that lives with obesity as well. So that kind of all ties in to, to that kind of theory, really. Now, I mean, a conversation that even I had earlier was I am convinced that if I let myself, I would just live in a sea of burgers. I have a limitless appetite for pizza and there's nothing that brings me more joy. And, and I'll have it night after night if I can, but I have to stop myself, etc. Obviously, I don't believe that obesity is necessarily a, something about weak will. But what's the difference between me who feels that urge but stops myself? and someone who doesn't? 
Well, I think there's a number of factors, really. If people have some of the genetic genes, so for instance, the FTO gene is one of the most common obesity genes. I have two copies of that. Okay, so you've got that. <laughs> uh, so does Eve. You have. You have I two think I have one copy. Oh, you have one copy. I've got two. I've got two FTOs. Yeah, I have the FTO as well. And but there are various others. There's over a hundred different genes I think that they've identified now linked to obesity. So that makes you more predisposed. So it doesn't mean that you're going to. So that is my pizza. That's the pizza. Yeah. Calling. So that's kind of making. <laughs> that's why you have that. I suppose. Yeah. Kind of. You know. That's what you go to. I suppose the thing about obesity is is that the factors that influence it are kind of societal factors, you know, the environment that we live in, levels of deprivation, all these different factors. So I don't know your lifestyle and how you live and how much money you have, etc. But you probably have choices where you can choose different choices and make different food choices. Whereas for some people, what we know is that their areas where they live the access to actually getting fresh fruit and veg, for instance, and different food choices just isn't there. And if you can't just jump in the car and go to a supermarket where you can access these things, which a lot of people can't, you know, they have to literally shop within their locality because that's their lifestyle. Then if they can only access higher fattier foods and processed foods and, you know, not not as healthy or nutrient dense foods, then that's kind of all they're going to be able to eat. So no wonder that's what they do eat. So it's a case of we lovely if we all have that choice of choosing different foods to eat. But for some people, that just isn't their reality. And so it comes down to the obesogenic environment that we live in and the access to these kind of high fat, salt and sugar foods that are available. And, you know, back in the day, they weren't that accessible. You know, we didn't have Uber, we didn't have delivery, we didn't have all these kind of choices to get hold of these foods. But now we do. And that kind of has changed the accessibility of these foods, which then makes people be able to choose these things, whereas historically they wouldn't have been able to. They would have had to physically go and get them, whereas now it's just at your fingertips a lot quicker as well. Mm. Sarah, can I ask you how emotion plays into this? Because I know that there are a significant number of people who are living with obesity who, in fact, are suffering with an eating disorder like binge eating disorder. Or, you know, maybe it's not even clinically diagnosed as a binge eating disorder, but I know that binge eating and compulsive eating related to emotional difficulties is perhaps more common than we think. So how does that play into this theory about that it's all physiological and it's a neurological condition? Well, I think it's the fact that trauma can have a real strong response in the body. So if you suffer some sort of traumatic experience, what it does is release different kind of hormones and responses within the body scientifically. So it is kind of changing that physiological makeup of your body by having a response to trauma. So what we do know is that people that are living with obesity that, you know, have had a traumatic event, which, you know, there is a lot of link between trauma and obesity. We know that this will be another factor that's pushing you into kind of more into that not being able to have the same controls as somebody not living with obesity. And I think when it comes to things like binge eating, um, it's a comfort thing. You're using it to kind of block out whatever's happened or to make you feel better. And for some people, and then again, if you're more prone to choosing things like pizza or calorie dense foods, then that's obviously not going to help with someone's weight if they are living with obesity as well. So it's all linked intrinsically through various different systems, but there is a link between all of it. It's not about then just having willpower and making a different choice because obesity isn't a behavior, it's an outcome. And I think that's what we need to start looking at it in that way, because too often it's about being a lifestyle choice and a behavior when it's really not. Well, Sarah, it's been fascinating to speak to you. Thank you so much for sparing us some time today. Well, thank you for having me along. Thank you.
I still feel like the path that you're going down places a judgment on people who struggle with their weight. The path that I'm going down? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Because you're saying that the emotional, the psychological, that it's sad to lose the pleasure of food and all those kinds of things. And really, you know, the fundamental problems are genetic and neurological. And that if this is a disease, we need to stop looking at it from an emotional perspective because we'll instantly have to start making judgments about those emotions. Do we believe that that person is responsible for their emotions? What have they done to feel like this? Or it's a bit like calling women all hysterical and banging them up in asylums. That's that's what you're doing, Eve. <laughs> I don't know how you've got there, my okay. friend. Okay. Um, no, I'm not blaming anyone. I think actually I'm doing the opposite. What I'm saying is I don't think it's as simple as there's this one reason why people are like this and we have to just target that. I think mm. that there's lots and lots of different reasons why people end up eating to a point where they become unhealthy. But isn't that, you know, I mean, for instance, you know, once you've got high blood pressure, you know, you've got a disease process in place on top of the one that's caused you to get overweight, if we are going to say yeah. yes, that obesity is a disease. Mm. And you may well be headed for diabetes or mm -hmm. have blood sugar problems. Is it not too late? Should we not be looking for ways to intervene earlier? My worry would be that it's a blanket decision that, you know, anyone who happens to fit into the obese category ends up qualifying for this drug for the rest of their life. And it's going to complete, I don't care what anyone says, it's going to completely mess up your relationship with food. And also there might be multiple things that are going on psychologically that's causing somebody to be compulsive in their behaviour. You're talking about psychology and you wouldn't have accused menopausal women of being hysterical. And, no, you know, no, but if... It's not if psychology, a it's, a, it's a hormonal imbalance that brings about a bunch of symptoms. If you had a menopausal woman who was presenting to their doctor with depression and was saying it's because of the menopause I've entered the menopause and now I'm feeling depressed and anxious a good doctor should say let's explore that a bit I wonder what else is going on in your life and how else you're feeling about other factors that might be influencing your mood and you know maybe it is to do with the menopause but that's not just to do with the menopause I'm not saying I'm, I'm on the fence but I don't think that it's as clear cut as no. there's there's one problem and therefore one solution but do you see what i'm saying that you're yes. veering towards labeling it psychological and even though you're doing it with kindness it's the same as saying someone's fat because they're weak-willed well i think now maybe we should speak to somebody who has strong opinions on this on the line now we have dr asha lamy gp and fat activist Dr. Lamy, thank you so much for finding some time to talk to us today. We're discussing whether or not obesity is a disease in itself that requires medical treatment. What do you say to that? Well, I don't think obesity is a condition at all for lots of different reasons. The first one is the only way to define obesity is to use the BMI, the body mass index, and the BMI, uh, you know, as described by the WHO, is a way of um, sort of estimating whether a person is at a higher rate of quote-unquote weight-related illnesses. Now, that has been disproven. The BMI has approximately a 50% false positive rate and a 30% false negative rate, so the BMI is not effective at estimating whether or not people are at risk of quote-unquote weight-related illnesses. So if BMI doesn't exist, then obesity doesn't exist. The other thing is that it's not a medical condition because obesity simply means 
you eat so much that you become fat. And that, again, has been disproven. There's very little evidence, if any, that shows that people are fat just because they eat too much or because they don't exercise enough or a mixture of the two. And there are lots of factors in play, the most important one being genetics, but there's also history of trauma, medications, medical illnesses, hormonal imbalances. And of course, the most important one is a history of dieting. Dieting itself causes people to gain weight and to become quote-unquote obese. The last thing I'd like to say as to why I don't believe it's a medical condition is because there is a striking amount of evidence now that shows that by labeling it as a condition, we are actually making the problem significantly worse. That if we stopped calling it obesity and stopped treating people on the basis of their BMI alone, we would actually improve the health of the nation massively. And not just the health of the fat population, but in fact, the health of the entire population. Because there are a lot of people out there who believe themselves to be healthy because they are not obese, when in actual fact, they are very unhealthy. So this is an issue that affects the entire population, not just fat people like me. Dr. Lamy, the reason we're talking about this today is because there's been increasing amounts of research into medications that act on certain pathways, the GLP-1 uh, hormonal pathways, and that by interrupting these pathways and removing the extreme hunger that some people feel that makes them unable to resist overeating, essentially it brings about weight loss and it completely remedies the problem. It's a long-term treatment that people are saying should be rolled out to everyone. And we're not talking about borderline cases here. We're talking about people that BMI probably would be a fairly good indicator. Someone who had a BMI in the 40s, for instance, it would be quite a good indicator that they were considerably overweight. Would it now? And that's according to whose opinion? I'm curious. Who decided that BMI 40 means that considerably overweight is that your opinion or the opinion of experts or um you know well so if you go to the nhs websites oh i see the nhs mm, website yes yeah so so the the, bmi but i've already explained to you that the bmi is not fit for purpose that 50 percent of people with a bmi of over 25 are actually medically healthy yeah but that's a borderline case because you know i mean i've been there myself and and had bmi 26 you're using information that is not correct now just because you've gone to an nhs website that's not true the study has not shown that it's a borderline case at all In fact, it's shown that even people at the highest weights are not all medically unhealthy, that there are a high proportion or a reasonably high proportion of people that are. So if you want to measure whether someone is unhealthy, you measure their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their HbA1c, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What we are saying is we'll just give So you're saying forget about weight? You're making it that way. You are. You're saying forget about... You're, you're saying forget about weight, that, that what we should be looking at is much more detailed yeah. uh, vital with, statistics. With, with regards to GLP-1 analogues, I think it's very important to talk about the money that's behind these kind of podcasts and all this nonsense that we see in the press. The study, that there's only a study or a couple of studies that have actually shown this is effective, only studied up to one year and then up to two, did not go beyond that. Why? Because we know that beyond two years, weight will start to creep back on. We have hundreds of years worth of evidence to show that after two years, the weight will creep back on. So that's why they stopped the study early. There is no evidence whatsoever that this works in the long term. Well, actually, hang on a minute, because doctors you are using these have been using them for about 15 years. So I don't think it's fair to say hang that. Hang on a second. They've been using it to treat diabetes for the last 15 years. They have not been using them to treat weight loss. In 
in fact, it's only become licensed by the FDA last year and licensed by the NHS this year. They've only been using it for the last six months to a year to treat weight loss. They are using it in doses that are significantly higher than they use to treat diabetes. There is no evidence to show that these are safe long-term for people who are not diabetic. So let's not pretend that there's a safe drug that we can easily roll out to everyone. The only people saying that are the people that Novo Nordisk and the other manufacturers of this drug who stand to profit by billions and billions. In the last quarter, Novo Nordisk went, what, two billion above what they were expecting to make? So no, there's no evidence that they're safe, none whatsoever. Dr. Lamy, can I ask you, a concern that I have about this is the effect that it would have on individuals' relationship with food. Because as we know, you know, we eat for many, many different reasons. What do you think stands to happen to someone's relationship with food if they take this drug? Okay, first of all, we're... (laughs) The way that this drug helps you to lose weight is it suppresses your appetite, as you said earlier on. The idea that people are fat because they eat too much is nonsensical. Now, we've known since the 1940s that if you starve someone, in other words, if you reduce their calorie intake or their energy intake so it's less than the amount of energy they expend, to begin with, they will lose weight. Everybody knows this. It's something we've known for ages. That's because your body is going into starvation mode. Within the first two years, what happens is your body panics and it starts to cope with that. It increases your basal metabolic rate. Uh, it, it changes the chemistry of your brain. It changes the chemistry of your gut. All sorts of things happen. And with after two years, what tends to happen is people start to regain the weight slowly but surely. So again, you're asking me questions about relationships with food. The implication being that eating too much food makes you fat. In the long term, it does not. Eating less food will make you lose weight to begin with. But even people who are starved by being given weight loss surgery regain weight after two years. It's just a fact. Dr. Lomi, I think a big concern is among doctors is uniform, that certain conditions seem to be far more prevalent in people who have more body fat and more internal fat. You know, and obviously genetics are a big part of that. So you could have someone, you know, who had more body fat and didn't develop any of these illnesses, but they are seen more commonly in these people and other metabolic diseases. And I think that people are looking for ways not to have so many people with those illnesses. I would say that there is absolutely no evidence that losing weight will prevent any of these illnesses. There is no evidence that reducing weight at any point in time improves outcomes. If you look at diabetes, for example, they looked at all the deaths from diabetes, whether it was cardiovascular deaths or all-cause deaths, and they found that that weight loss did not improve your outcomes. And in fact, weight gain had no impact on your outcomes. There was an entire 10-year prospective study called the Look Ahead Study, where they gave a group of people with diabetes a weight loss program, compared them to controls. They stopped the study early because weight loss had no impact on heart attacks and strokes. It's not true. The evidence has made it very clear this is not true. Losing weight does not improve your health. If you look at all of the nice guidance and you actually get into it and look at the evidence, for example, fatty liver disease, there is no evidence that weight loss improves non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. None whatsoever. Check out the What about the direct studies? That's not long-term. The direct study is not a long-term study. So we haven't got... Well, they've been going for... They're just about to do five, six years. They are, but we don't have the long-term outcome. And they showed that... They showed that weight loss brought about reduction of visceral fat, fat in the liver. They showed that on MRI scans and these people's diabetes went into remission. Hang on a minute. 
it went into remission in the short term, not in the long term. And well, yes, some people I are still in remission. Losing weight reduces the amount of fat on your body. I'm talking about health outcomes. But direct was about diabetes. It is, but there's no long term outcomes. Look, I've read the study. There's no long term outcomes yet. We're still waiting on them. We don't know if this is impacting the amount of heart attacks and strokes that people are having. That's true. Just because it put diabetes into remission for the first couple of years does not mean it actually improves your outcomes. And that's the problem. But the point that I was trying to make is that just because an illness is prevalent in a certain group of people does not mean that that particular category of people, for example, fat people, if an illness is is more common in fat people, it doesn't mean that being fat has caused them to have that illness. That is nonsensical logic. You have to figure out, is it the fat that's causing them to have this problem or is it something else? And more and more studies are showing that it's not the fat itself. It's the way fat people are being treated. They are being encouraged to go on diets. They go through weight cycling or yo-yo dieting. That increases their risk of diabetes. They experience weight stigma. That causes uh, increases their risk of diabetes. They experience high volumes of stress because of the prejudice that they face on a daily basis. Now, Now, we know that fat people are more likely to develop diabetes. Nobody's arguing that. I'm not arguing that. But what we need to do is we need to be addressing the fact that we shouldn't be telling people to diet. We shouldn't be stigmatizing fat people. We shouldn't be causing fat people unnecessary stress because of discrimination. That's how you help the health of the nation. And by making obesity a medical condition, you are simply giving doctors the green light to stigmatize us more to force us onto more diets, to encourage us to diet more and yo-yo diet. I think that what we're doing and what we have historically been doing to fat people over the last 30, 40, 50 years has actually made the situation worse. And you know what supports this? The fact that we've had quote-unquote anti-obesity campaigns for how many decades? None of them have worked. None of them Mm. have worked. And in fact, Mm. if anything, the situation is getting worse. So if they're not working, isn't it time we turn around and think, hmm, maybe drugs aren't the answer. Maybe we might need to start thinking about whether we take a completely different approach, especially since these approaches, like the health at every size approach, the intuitive eating approach, actually have evidence that they are effective. Mm. Well, Dr. Lamy, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, Eve, we haven't talked about Kim Kardashian. Oh, because this whole thing, as many stories do, started it's, with Kim it's Kardashian. All, yeah, basically the genesis of all evil. Mm-hmm. Um, she was so, injecting herself with semaglutide to fit Well, it rumoured, allegedly, Sorry. allegedly. So there was this whole big story about her losing £16 to get into Marilyn Monroe's What's that in real dress. money? A stone? A stone Just a over bit. a stone. Mm. To get into Marilyn Monroe's dress, what she wore to sing Happy Birthday to President Kennedy once. Oh. in She wore it at the Met, Met Ball. The Met Gala. I have some contacts in Los Angeles um, and I've heard of people who use it to lose weight, even though they're not. Well, they are all heading for disaster because they're not going to take it for life. Mm. They'll want to stop taking it. And apparently it screws up your uh, GLP-1 situation to the extent that you, you will overeat or be terribly hungry afterwards and you tend to end up heavier than before. So be warned if you are thinking this is a way to thinness, a skinniness, 
beach body etc it's it's definitely not that so bleak and depressing that healthy people feel that they have to inject themselves with a drug so that they can be a few pounds lighter i mean what so they can fit earth? into a dress <laughs> allegedly Ugh, what is going allegedly. on in the world <laughs> Well, that's all we've got time for. You can read about this and all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday, which you can consume in newspaper format on the Mail app or on mailplus.co.uk. We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week, and we will see you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.